She was singing that. I was reminded of something that Martha read to me or we read somewhere in the past week about a couple of little birds that were talking, a couple of sparrows that were talking, and they were watching mortals like you and I and frenetically running around, upset and agitated and troubled and bewildered and burdened. One sparrow said to the other, why do human beings act like that? One sparrow said to the other in answer, maybe they don't have a heavenly father who watches over them and cares for them. Well, we do. We'd allow ourselves to be watched over and cared for because he does love us. Now, I have intentionally abbreviated the message this morning because I knew I was going to take a little time, extra time. All of you can look at your watch. It's either an hour slow or fast or whatever, but I'm going to respect the additional time I took in that uh, survey period, and I have prepared accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean I'm making no promises. I do not want you... <laughs> do not jump at any conclusions or at any exits, for that matter. But I, I fully intend to uh, respect uh, your time. I believe the Lord has more to say to us today. He has already spoken to me through this fellowship, through you, your face, your prayers, your music, through our being together. So let's listen to see if maybe God doesn't have another little personal P.S., to add to your heart and to mine to make life richer and fuller and better in every way. I'm preaching through the life of Christ. And we come now in Mark 1 to the 21st verse. Let me read it to you. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Jesus went into the synagogue. One translation adds, as his custom was, for Jesus grew up attending church. Jesus grew up attending Sabbath school, synagogue, and temple. It was a part of his life. There are some good habits that we need to form. And faithfulness to the place and time of worship is one of them recognizing that such habitual worship can sometimes degenerate into meaningless ritual nevertheless. The Scripture says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. When God's people gather for worship, God's people are to be there. Jesus began to teach no hesitancy, no delay, no postponement. 
No waiting for the ideal moment. The time was there. The people were present. And Jesus began to teach. Now there are two words that I want to underline this morning that really underline themselves as you read this passage of Scripture. And the first word is the word amazed. The response of the people, the first response of the people to the presentation of the person of Jesus Christ and to the declaration of the teaching of Jesus Christ, the first reaction was amazement. Amazement. And my dear friend, the first and lasting source of joy in life and in worship is the constant and fresh realization that God cares and watches over you. Just as Dorothy sang about a moment ago. We need to return our vision to the Lord and to His love and to His provision of power for us and to His oversheltering care of us to once again let our hearts be filled with fresh amazement. So easily do we grow jaded. Blase. Live our lives in the dozen. We need to be reminded by a fresh presentation of Jesus Christ and His message of love and caring to once again feel our hearts vibrate with astonishment that God loves us. And that's no joke. What are the causes of the loss of amazement? Well, there are many. I think it derives initially from the type of personality which we are, which is subject to change, of course, and I'll get to that in a moment. One psychiatrist said that there are basically two kinds of people. Now, I realize the limitations of generalizations. As someone once said, all generalizations are bad, even that one. But one psychiatrist has said that there are two classes of people, basically, in life. There are people who approach life as a problem or a privilege. Life is either a problem to be solved or a privilege, a gift to be enjoyed. So in these moments of worship this morning, take a little inventory of your own attitudes. What is life to you? How do you view it? Fluctuating as we all do, I'm certain at times, between problem and privilege. What's the primary stance of your life? Problem or privilege? Now, if life is primarily a problem, if you approach life primarily as a problem, you probably do two things. You spend a lot of time psychologizing about it, analyzing it. Now, I do believe we need to analyze the experiences of life so that we can be certain the ingredients are valid. But a lot of us are on such an analysis kick about everything that we are paralyzed by this self-preoccupation. We analyze every thought, every look, every dream, every motive. 
every person, every reaction. We get so caught up in this psychologizing of life that we get hidebound by it. I played golf yesterday. I suppose you would call it that. Um, Jack Keir and the Trinity Baptist Golf Association, which is an exciting group of men in our church, have a number of tournaments each year, and they have one which they call the Buckner Fanning Appreciation Golf Tournament. They started this when I had a bad car wreck a few years ago, and they thought I was going to die. <laughs> and so they thought, well, we'll have this tournament to kind of memorialize Buckner. Well, I died yesterday out at Almas. Uh, <laughs> if the game I played yesterday is any indication of how I appreciate myself, I have a very low self-image. I'm in bad shape. You can so analyze your golf swing that you're paralyzed by it. You can stand up there and think of all the things that everybody tells you. Don't move your head. Keep your left arm stiff. Pivot. Keep your right arm in close. Break your wrist at the top of the swing. Follow through. All of, you can try to remember all of the things you read and have been told. And if you try to think of all of those, the minute you're trying to hit the golf ball, your arms fall off. You just, you, you disintegrate. You can't hit the golf ball like that. And my friend, you can't hit the golf ball of life like that either. Surely we need to study and we need to analyze and we need to look at ourselves and sometimes we need the help of other people to see ourselves. But there comes a time when with all of that programmed into your psyche, into your spirit, into your mind and into your body, you need to turn loose and hit the ball. The other problem some of us have is to over-intellectualize life. Those of us who approach life as a problem, we feel that all we need is just more definitions. So we intellectualize everything. Church, Bible, spirit, love, truth, power. We've taken all of these terms that are meant to describe and a response and then an experience and we have reduced them to a definition or an analysis. My dear friend, simply because you and I have analyzed emotions and analyzed words and analyzed ourselves and defined experiences, it doesn't mean that we've had the experience. And God wants to give us more than analysis and definitions. He wants to give us experience. He wants some new lights to go on down inside and some new spirit to energize our minds, our lives, our bodies. Well, what is the cure for this? The, this approach to life is a problem and this over-preoccupation with analysis and definition. Nikos Kazantzakis, one of my favorite authors, the man who wrote Zorba the Greek, said that we are to live like a child who sees everything for the first time. Isn't that a great phrase? Like a child who sees everything for the first time. Now, when you begin to feel jaded, 
and blasé and discouraged. Suppose that this was the only day you would ever see the sun shine. Suppose this was the only day you would ever see the sun. Suppose this was the only day in your entire life when you would ever see a flower. This day, the only time you would ever look at it, you'd concentrate upon it, you'd see its shape and its color, you would imprint it indelibly upon your mind, you would never, never, never forget and suddenly there would be a new breath of excitement about life. Suppose you would never see but one more sunset. Suppose this is the only time you would ever be in this church worship service. The only time how we would concentrate upon it, how we would be open to what it is saying, how we would record there in our spirits and in our minds every impression, every thought, every look, every face. Look on life today and tomorrow and each day. Suppose it's the only time you'll ever again see that face across the table from you. Just suppose, not for any sort of morbid depression that that would cause. That's not the purpose at all. But it's to get us back in touch with concentration upon the blessings of life and the givenness of God to us in the present moments. Why, it'll revive your spirit. You'll see again and not just look. You'll perceive. You'll get into things. People, emotions, Places, flowers, sunsets, colors, music. Concentrate as a child. Look upon it as though it was the first time you had ever seen it. And it may be. It really may be. Also, participate in life. Get out of the grandstand occasionally. I mean, the cynics sit in the grandstand. The second guessers sit in the grandstand. And all of us at times find ourselves in the grandstand. But don't let that become a permanent posture and a permanent attitude. Always looking on objectively. Always evaluating from a distance. Get into the game yourself. Participate. My, you'll begin to feel a new sense of amazement and excitement surge back into the veins of your body life. Now, the second word I want to underline and emphasize quickly is the word authority. The word authority. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, says that if an elephant was to enter a restaurant in London... He would have the power, but not the authority. 
I suppose the difference, if I were to try to make a differentiation between the two words, the difference would be, the difference between power is that it can be very amoral. It can be sheer brute force. But the word authority, it seems to me, has within it an intrinsic moral rightness about it, an intrinsic moral value about it. It does exert power, but it exerts power out of the base of moral authority, intrinsic worth and value. Now, Jesus has all power, but the word better described and, and uh, defined and translated, all authority. All of God's power evolves out of his basic moral nature. That's the authority of God, a moral authority, a moral rightness about life. Consequently, there are some things that are right, morally right, eternally right, forever wrong, whatever the cultural vogue may say, whatever the loudest voices may say, whatever the majority may say, there are some things that are eternally right, emanating from the authoritative moral nature of an eternal and moral God. He speaks as one who has authority. Moral authority. He has the authority of knowledge, of course. You never hear Jesus saying, well, I guess so, or I suppose, or maybe. No ambivalence on the part of Jesus at all. In fact, he comes to say, Moses said to you, but wait a minute, I say. The authority of knowledge, but the deeper authority is the authority of character the authority of his moral character. Jesus Christ really integrated life. He really, he, he was the integrated man. The word integrated really means wholeness. Integrity really means wholeness of person. I understand in math that an integer is a number that cannot be divided into fractions. That's where we got our word Integrity. An undivided man, a whole person. Jesus was a whole man, integrated, total integrity. Now, there is nothing in the Gospels as significant as the way Jesus places himself at the center of his teaching. Nothing in the Gospels as significant as the way in which Jesus Christ places himself at the center of his teaching. He does not say with the world's teachers, truth is everything, I am nothing. He says, I am the truth. He does not claim with the founders of ethnic religions to suggest answers to all of the enigmas and riddles of life that perplex us in this tumultuous age. He does not say that. He does not give answers. He says, I am the answer. He does not offer the guidance of rules and regulations and philosophies. 
to guide us through all of the perplexities of everyday living and all of the exigencies of life. He doesn't give us rules. He doesn't give us precepts. He doesn't give us philosophies. He says, I give you myself. I am with you. I am truth. I am the answer. I am with you. He himself is the center of his teaching. He is the totally integrated whole man. And when we allow him into our lives, he suddenly integrates our lives. He brings together all of the fragmented pieces and he gives a cohesiveness to life. He gives a power base, or a better word, an authority base, the basis of his own moral authority occupying the hub of our lives. How many of you know what a hub is? Oh, good. A hub. Now that's sort of that's a Texas pronunciation, I have to admit. Hub. I don't know how to say it any other way. My uh, my great grandfather operated uh, a freight line from Jefferson, Texas, to Greenville, Farmersville, and Dallas. Now, Jefferson, they used to bring freight on barges up the Red River and then across Caddo Lake, and Jefferson was a, was a port town. And my grandfather, my great-grandfather, operated a, a freight line out of Jefferson to Dallas and Greenville and Farmersville up there in North Texas. I say he operated a freight line. He owned a wagon. <laughs> and he used that wagon to transport goods from Jefferson to Farmersville and in the Dallas-Greenville area. And my father had one of the hubs of his grandfather, my great-grandfather's wagon. It had it mounted over the garage as a light. It had a top on it to keep the water out. My father had a light mounted inside, and light would shine out of the, the spoke holes of that hub. Well, that was our local basketball hoop. We didn't have a hoop, but we used the top of that as uh, uh, the imaginary basket and basketball. We'd play on our drive, uh, driveway there and shoot at that, uh, at that hub. Now listen. There were a lot of spokes that came out of that hub. But there was just one hub. It centralized everything. Now a lot of the spokes, they performed an indispensable function. But listen. You cannot make a spoke a hub. We get in trouble when we try to do that in life. Life has many spokes. Family, business, church, recreation, education, all of those marvelous as spokes. But you try to make one of those spokes into a hub and it'll break down. It won't carry the weight. Church is not intended to be the hub. Family not intended to be the hub. Business not intended. Pleasure not intended. All of those fine so long as they are in proper relationship to and with one another and joined together in the hub. Jesus is the hub of life. 
and all of the multitudinous and multifarious expressions move out to the rim to touch the world. Family, business, pleasure, children, work, school, reading, church, all of those perform marvelous areas of contact and relationship, but life must be integrated. It must be centered in the hub, and Jesus Christ must be the hub or the whole wagon of life's going to break down. The authority of Jesus Christ to occupy the place of centrality in us to perform the cohesiveness, the integration, the wholeness that we must have to live as persons. In conclusion, the Lord provides the two great needs of life, certitude in the realm of truth, Transformation in the realm of life. Certitude in the realm of truth and transformation in the realm of life. Men want to know. I want to know. But more than that, I want to become. I want to be. I want to know the truth but I want to be different. And I join in the prayer, oh, that a man might arise in me, that the man I am might cease to be. Well, this can happen. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to all of us. If we will just let Jesus Christ enter my life like he entered that synagogue a long time ago, and he'll rekindle enthusiasm. I'll once again stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. He'll restore a sense of wonder. He'll put a spring back in my step and hope back in my heart and light back in my eyes, excitement back in my days, even my Mondays. He'll do that. And he will give me a sense of the authoritative presence of his wholeness as he comes to integrate all of life around himself. Amazing. He'll do that. And he will give me a sense of the authoritative presence of his wholeness as he comes to integrate all of life around himself. Amazing, wonderful, beautiful authority of God in you. Let him be the hub. And he'll put the spark back in your living. Let's bow our heads, please, and close our eyes. And now, Father... May we not begin to play mental leapfrog right now and start jumping to the restaurant or home or the golf course or wherever we might be going this afternoon. Help us to pretend for these next few moments that this might be the only moment in which we will have the opportunity to really concentrate ourselves upon you. And may we do that.
So many distractions in life, we allow so many of them in. And though we cannot control who knocks at the door, we can control whether or not we will open it. And so may we not open the door to any other thought in these moments but the thought that you would have for us. Take out of the many words and thoughts and ideas that have come across our minds this morning in music and testimony and word and scripture and announcement and sermon, whatever. Out of all of those words, take the word that you would imprint and implant upon us. And dear God, may these be moments in which we feel the freshness of your presence, the new vivification of your power within us. We might, once again will be amazed and astounded at what you're doing, that we will enjoy you and you enjoy us as together we walk and talk in life. Bless this moment of invitation, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.